Father in heaven, we thank you that your word of God does not change. Our world is like shifting shadows, constantly moving for the worse. We can always find the rock, true, the rock of truth in the word, Lord. And so we thank you, and we can turn to it, and enjoy it, and teach from it, and apply it to our lives. And so we're so grateful, Lord. Father, thank you for each and every one that are out tonight, and those who are watching online, children and young people down the hall, and all those who are caring for them, Lord. Bless them, and may we just have a great time in your word tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, after the completion of the temple and the filling of the Holy Spirit into the Holy of Holies, the kind of glory, God has now dispensed his law through Moses and Aaron. According to the chapter, uh, Numbers chapter 1, it took somewhere around a month uh, after the Shekinah glory filled the temple. Um, then the giving of the law, the book of, the book of Leviticus, uh, was another month. And soon they'll be on their way to the border of the promised land. And we'll learn great things as we study that. But in this last chapter of the book of Leviticus... God gives the nations instructions on vows and tithing. God knew that after hearing the gracious nature of his law, and make sure you hear that, I've taught the law that way, the gracious nature of the law, um, God was very gracious in that, that the nation would want to respond to the worthiness of God. They would want to do something. They would want to make vows and tithes. God did not want them to worship him like the pagans worship their gods. He did not want them making false vows, not keeping promises. He, he did not want that from his nation. And so, instead of a hypocritical life, he wanted them to be worshipers and respond in joy and give them opportunity to participate in what he was doing. It's one of the things we do when we give. We participate in what God's doing. And so as this great nation in its infancy really is starting to move, it needs to be funded as well. And so Moses and its leaderships and this Levitical tribe, they all need to be financed to be able to run this nation so God has a way to do that. And that's really what this last chapter is about. It's a chapter that shows how God funds a nation, but how he helps them in their humanity to give properly, to handle vows, good and bad, and how to deal with those. It's a very, very interesting chapter. I broke it down into five thoughts today, and we'll start here with number one, the importance of making a vow to God. Look at verses one and two with me. We'll, we will highlight some verses that we go through here. has been my custom to try to get through these long chapters. Um, but we'll read some of the verses. Here, verse one, again, the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel and say to them, when a man makes a difficult vow, he shall be valued according to the valuation of a person's belonging to the Lord. Well, again, this chapter deals with things that are given to God through vows or tithes here. And, and vows were not a requirement of the law. This is, you'll notice this isn't a requirement like we've seen in the other laws. But a vow was to be freely given to God. However... <laughs> God has always desired his people to reflect him in their conduct. And so after giving to this law, he knew that they would want to participate in where he was taking the nation. And so he provides a way for them to give, a way to give vows. So God's people were, were, were to keep their word. He, he's, he is very clear of that, right? He says, let your yes be yes and your no's be no. That was a term, a Jewish term. And he didn't care for double-minded people. The Bible says they're unstable in all their ways, uh, the eyes of the Lord on those. So he, he wanted to help them have a vow, a promise to God that was done voluntarily, but not done out of a requirement. There is always a temptation for someone to make a promise during great times of distress, maybe or time of extreme gratitude, or, or even maybe a sense of a calling. Maybe you've been there. God, if you get me out of this, I will do. Anybody ever done that? <laughs> That's the idea of the vow here. 
um, that he's addressing. And so what does he do with a nation or with people that want to give a vow to God, mostly probably out of response to God's glory and his person and who he is, but yet may fail in having the ability to fulfill that? Well, the nation of Israel was to follow God's plan. He had a plan to help them keep their word. Now, there's probably no better example than a vow giver than Hannah. Um, we all know Hannah, the story um, of this wife of Elkanah. Uh, she was barren. You remember the story? And she pleaded before God. Each and every time they went up to Shiloh, each and every time they went up to celebrate different feasts, she would stay near the tabernacle, and there she would cry out to God. And you remember, she made a vow to God that if God would give her a child, she would give that child to the full-time service of the Lord. And it was a vow. And we know that Hannah was a godly woman, and she, caught, she kept that vow. In fact, she had no desire to buy back her son, but this text actually allows someone to buy back a child or another relative in some way, um, in a way that is still worshipful to God. Now, the truth of these commands is that it gave the one making a vow of consecration something to do definitely. Definitely something to have his hands on or her hands to do something. It, it had value to it. it was, there was action associated with it as you study this. And, and this prevented people from making empty promises to God. I thought about that a lot as I studied this this week. I thought, Lord, you don't like empty promises, do you? Oh, and I'll do this if you get me out of that. And if you just do that, I'll do this. And, and often he is so kind and so gracious and gives us life and does all those things. And, and we just have a bunch of empty promises. God doesn't want that. He does not desire that for his people. And so he makes it very clear in this text that there is a way to fulfill these promises, these vows. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 22, makes it clear that it was not a sin to refrain from making a vow. So that reminds us that this isn't a law. You should make vows now, right? This, this isn't a law that God gave. But once the vow was made, it was a promise to God, and God wanted it kept. He wanted our word, our word to be valid. And there should be nothing that should mark a Christian more than when we say we would do something that we would follow through with that, Right? That's the mark of, of truth and honesty and trustworthiness, right? So substitutions now could be made. God makes this an opportunity to kind of buy back this vow in a lot of ways. We say, well, why would he allow, allow such a thing? Well, I believe this stipulation is put here into this text because God wants to make clear that between a vow and a sacrificial offering, there was a great difference. It's very different. A vow was this free will, volitional uh, uh, worship of God that you were going to give him something, do something for him because you were, you were amazed at his glory and appreciated all that he did. So he wants to make a clear distinction be between a sacrificial offering and this. And he wants them to keep their word. But there is another aspect to this portion of the end of the law here. Is that God has clearly and graciously provided a way for the Israelites to be reconciled to him. Even though it was temporary. But God had also provided a law that promoted justice and fairness among the nation. So, so God is this God who shows he is a fair, he's a fair and just God. And on top of that, he's merciful and gracious. And so when a vow was made that maybe couldn't be uh, fulfilled, God made a way even for them to be able to accomplish that in a unique way. And that's a lot what this chapter is about. Now, after God had unfolded this great system of truth that he'd given them, there was definitely a response to what God had done. When they're done with Leviticus um, in this pronouncement of the law before Mount Sinai, the nation reacted amazingly. And we see it early on um, before they reject God and, go into, and don't go into the promised land. They believe him and they want to respond to him. 
And I think this was evident throughout the nation of Israel when we study the Old Testament, when we find godly people responding to the graciousness of God. Here's a verse that I, I never connected before to this passage, but I did this week. Psalms 116, verse 12. The psalmist here, you can almost see him with his hands outstretched saying, What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits towards me? What should I render? What should I vow to the Lord? What should I devote to the Lord for so much that he's done for me? See, this is the idea. This is what is the response to God's, God's law, God's grace in their life, God's provision for reconciliation for them. After the Apostle Paul teaches 11 great chapters of Romans, writes this inspired text to the church in Rome, the the response that he writes after that is chapter 12, verse 1. So he talked about the greatness of God, the depravity of man, God's, God's ability to rescue mankind outside of man's help, the description of, of this great Savior that comes and takes on human form and rescues man from his sin is just unbelievable. And then finally he gets to chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Therefore I urge you, brethren... By the mercies, or because of the mercies of God, present your bodies as holy, living in holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. So there's this response to the truth of God. And that's what often happened. Vows would be given in response to the, to the grace of God. I love Titus chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. The Bible says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men. And here's what the grace of God does instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and listen to this, and to live sensibly and righteously and godly in this present age. So God's children respond to God's grace. And so God was providing an opportunity for the nation. One other thought, um, we all know the great verse in Micah chapter 6, verse 8, where he says, He has told you, O man, what is good and what, is, uh, what, what the Lord requires of you. Remember that. Well, think about this. As the nation responds to this graciousness of God, he's going to be gracious with them throughout, throughout the Old Testament. Think about Micah. He, he thinks about all that God has given him, all, all the relationship he has with an almighty God, a way to be reconciled, a way to come and offer sacrifices and be right with God. It, it, put it into that context and you begin to think, here's Micah. He has told you, O oh man, what is good and what, is, and what does the Lord require of you? See, I think sometimes when we think of the law and we think of the Old Testament, it was just like, oh, those poor people in the Old Testament. Oh, they got all these laws and they got all this stuff and it's just terrible. The godly people don't think that way. They're actually very overwhelmed that this great almighty living God would give them what was required of them. They were very gracious and glad that God would do that to them. And so Micah says, oh man, what, uh, oh, man, what is good and what... Does the Lord require of you, right? And so when he saw that in the sacrifices and the ordinances and all this grace and truth and reconciliation that God had provided, even in the Old Testament law, Micah responds to do justice and to, and to have loving kindness and to walk humbly with the Lord. That was the response to a God who was so gracious. That's the way godly people responded. And just like in, Roman, in Psalms 116, uh, Lord, what can I give you for all the benefits you've done for me? That's the way they responded. They looked at God as a gracious God. So God knew that his people would on occasion make some vows to him that, that were difficult, right? They would respond to some things. So he provides instruction for those vows in this chapter because they were not sacrifices. And he allows an opportunity to remove the vow and so they don't become empty promises to God. It's very gracious. Look at our second thought. Assessing and assigning valuation for persons vow vowed to God. Now here you realize it doesn't take you long as you study this. And it's, and it's difficult because it's, uh, it's, it's, it's written very in a legal form as the text goes down in verses 3 through 8. But, but it's assigning value to people. Because you could dedicate, you could vow a child, a brother, or somebody, you could, or yourself, you could vow, uh, vow someone to the Lord. And so this 
this section in verses 3 through 8, and you kind of look down through here, is where the person was assigned a value according to their age and their general usefulness to society. And this was especially important in an agriculture setting, right? An agriculture type of society that was the nation of Israel. And, and there was a great difference between a male that would have been somewhere between 20 and 60, you'll see in the text, versus um, a female or a child and what they could produce. And, and though even in this time, in this ancient world, women, they did work in the fields, their first responsibility was the home, and thus the value to income was much smaller, and so they were to, they were to rate them that way, the priesthood. So if a person, uh, if a person was dedicated or vowed to the service of the tabernacle, like, like a Samuel was, the estimation of that person's value was based on their ability to what they could produce, right? What they physically labor could do. And you can see, if you look down in these verses, you kind of see a chart they laid out here. Zero to four um, was five shekels for a male, three shekels for a female. So if Hannah wanted to buy um, Samuel back, between ages zero and, five, and four, it would have cost her five shekels. Now, a shekel was uh, one month was about the earning of a shekel. So this is almost a half a year of wages to buy that child back as a gift to the Lord. Instead of, Lord, I will, it, I'm still giving to him to you, but I'm giving him to you monetarily. God is allowing that. It's very fascinating what God does here. You'll notice um, five to 19 to 20 there, uh, 20 shekels for a male, 10 for a female, 20 to 59, 60, uh, 50 shekels for a male, 30 shekels for a female, 60 and over years, 15 shekels for a male and 10 shekels for a female. So you see the peak years um, of 20 to 60 where um, people are strong and able to produce uh, strong work and, and, and value in work. And then again, it tapers off uh, as men and women get older there. Now, the price or the value of this individual should be understood as representing either the wage of a worker, which again was about a shekel a month, or the relatively worth of the value the person brought to the tabernacle, a service that he could provide or she could provide. And if that service included heavy manual labor, now think about how much heavy labor there was. There was the constantly carrying of carcasses, Right? Uh, heavy carcasses, and if you ever lift it, you know, you, boy, you're heavy like a dead body, you know. Well, that's really true. When you try to lift something that's not alive, it's, it's very heavy. So there was, there, was, there was heavy work that took place. There was constantly firewood and, and all kinds of things that had to be transported in and out of the tabernacle. And then there was the transportation of the tabernacle itself, though the tribes were responsible for certain aspects and lining up with it, that whole thing had to been taken down and traveled with them throughout the wilderness. And so you can easily see why a young man had a higher value to him if he vowed himself to the Lord. Now, it is real important to understand that not every situation was some kind of ransom, right? I think when I first studied this, I thought, oh, Lord, there's like you have to kind of, I made a vow, but now I got to pay for it to get out of it. Um, there's probably some of that, right? There's probably some poor decisions made. Somebody made an emotional-based decision, and now they've, they've, they, to keep their word, they have to go through this process. But I think there's many cases, as, as we study the life of Hannah and some of the psalmists here, that not only did they give their lives to the service of the Lord, but they gave the equivalent of the money they would have earned to the Lord at the same time because they were enthralled with him. They just want it to be where the Lord was. And they may not have been a Levite, so they weren't now allowed into the tabernacle like the Levites were, and so they became enthralled with what God was, his, who he was, and they wanted to dedicate their lives to the Lord. Now, notice in verse 8 here, that no one was prohibited from fulfilling a vow of consecration because they didn't have enough money. You'll notice here in verse 8 that even the poor that committed a vow, the priest could make a flexible valuation of them. That's, so God, there's just nobody that, that in the realm of Israel that didn't want to vow themselves to God to serve God that God would not accept. Even the poor, there was ways to evaluate their 
their financial ability. Now, the law was clear that everyone could give or vow their life to the Lord, and there was no one that was not useful to the Lord. And that's, I think that's that section here that I came away and said, well, Lord, it doesn't matter what age. And we have that from the psalmist in Psalms 116 to, to Samuel, this young child given uh, to the service of the Lord, to here in verse 8, even those who were poor could give themselves to the Lord. Three, there's an assessing, uh, assessing and assigning valuation for property vowed to God. This is the longer section here, and I've broken it up, and I'll just kind of go through different sections here. 9 through 13 is clean animals and unclean animals. You'll, you'll notice in verse 9 there that if the animal is clean, meaning fit for service, and you want it to redeem it from a vow of consecration to the Lord, meaning you said, God, I love you so much today, I am going to give you my best, my best young heifer, my best young steer, uh, my best lamb, I'm going to give you that. You were, you were overwhelmed with God that day, and you said, God, I want to offer this to you. The Bible here tells them that if they consecrated that Lord, they could exchange that for another animal. <laughs> you might have woke up and said, why did I do that? <laughs> But I need to keep my word to God. And so God allows a way to exchange that um, for another animal here. You'll see that in verse 9. As long as that animal was clean and equal and suitable for sacrifice. You'll notice in verse 11 that the animals that were unclean, meaning unfit for sacrifice, it too could be vowed to the Lord. So you could say, Lord, I want to give you my donkey. He's a great donkey, but you are worthy like us giving a car to a ministry, right? <laughs> I'm going to give this donkey. So the priest would set a value, notice here, for the animal. But with that unclean animal, you would add a fifth, right? 20% to that animal and that gift to, instead of giving him that donkey, you would give the price of that donkey plus 20% and the priest would put that in the treasury and the vow would be fulfilled. Now, in a case of a donkey or something like that, an unclean animal, it actually could be given to the priest and he could use it or, or he could sell it and that money would still go to the tabernacle treasury. But if they desired to keep the animal they, that they had dedicated, they were declaring the vow to the Lord and they'll say, Lord, I'm going to keep my vow. Here's the money plus 20% and it's fulfilled. So you can give your donkey to the use of God but it's going to cost you the value plus 20%. That's, that's the moral of the story here. This is, uh, so there was a way out of this vow that you truly meant at that moment, but the realization was, now I can't move my family because I gave up my donkey. And so God said, I want you to keep your word. Here's a way to do that. Here's a way to honor me and worship me. Now, in some cases, there may have been some really emotional charge decisions, right? Wrong motives. Um, I've heard too many stories of, of people where Christian organizations came through and they had great motivation tactics and, and um, they motivated people to do all kinds of things. Everything from adoption to giving you know, their retirement in and what, whatever else, right, to the cause of some ministry. Well, in many of these cases, the Israelites, they made these vows maybe in wrong motives, but God, God was a loving God. And he was dedicated to help them worship him and honor him in a right way. And so even though it was a costly vow, he showed that there was a way out. So in giving to the Lord the value of something plus 20%, you were able to fulfill that vow. Now, an example, and maybe not in equality, or I thought of this today um, as I was writing some of this, um, is our Academy Gala, Right? So if, you, if you're a vendor of some sort or you have some kind of product and, and you desire to want to help the academy out, you gave your product or whatever you do, you gave that. The person paid for that, but you didn't get the money back. It went to academy. But you did that because you love the work of the Lord. You see what, see what that, that's the idea here. And so... Um, they, they gave of themselves, whether it be their donkey or a clean animal or even a son, they gave of themselves and they lost all that that would give them 
but they gave it to the Lord because they appreciated what God was doing. That's, that's the idea here. So for the Israelite, it was just a dead loss, if you're thinking about it uh, from a red and black uh, view of this, plus 20%, but it was for worship. And, and over and over, God says, this is before me, I see this, I know what you're doing. Now remember, these gifts were the result of a vow, and they, they were funding this ministry. Look at 14 and 15. Here you see this redeeming of one's dwelling place. So now we get into somebody's home. So if a person wanted to consecrate by the giving of a vow of his house to the Lord, but here you'll notice in verse 14, but he desires to stay in it. God, God has a way for him to do this. The priest would set a value for this house. And again, the value of the house would be estimated, and then an additional 20% would be put on it, and that total would be given to the tabernacle treasury, and the vow would be fulfilled. And you say, well, why would someone do that? Why would someone say, God, here, take my house, and, and um, in fact, I want to live in it, so um, I'm going to have it evaluated, and then I'm going to give you the money plus 20%. Well, Maybe this Israelite was just overcome with the joy of the Lord. I've seen people give extraordinarily to missions and ministries because God had moved in their heart. Maybe this person, had God had provided for them in such a way that they knew it was from the hand of God or, or God protected them in some miraculous way and in their response to that, they said, God, I, I really want to honor you. And they made a vow. I said, you can have my home. I need somewhere to live, so I'm going to get the, the appraiser out here on my donkey that I turned in last month. <laughs> and I'm going to give you the cost of that home plus 20%. And I'm going to live in it, and I'm going to take care of it for you. And, and I think this is that, that thanksgiving that promotes this outcry with the nation of Israel that say, what shall I render to the Lord for all of his benefits? I think that's what they were doing. And, and, and God was providing a way to do that graciously. And under this impulse, he, he may vow his dwelling place to the Lord. He may say, Lord, this is yours. But God provided for them to be able to live in it. Again, I, I want to remind you these laws were given for the nation of Israel. But you can imagine the context today, right? You know, houses are skyrocketing in Florida, right? And all over the place. Can you imagine going out and putting your house in the line? I don't know what your house is worth, um, but think about it. <laughs> and and uh, they come out and they estimate it, and then you tack 20% on and you give that straight to the Lord. It's pretty amazing, isn't it? Um, and, and in no way am I suggesting you to do this. <laughs> but we should all be ready, and I want you to think about this. Not always, well, always responding to the Lord spiritually, but there are times to respond to the graciousness of God physically. Have you ever been in a message or, or reading your Bible or worshiping the Lord where God just burdened you to give to something? See, I think this is what's happening. And, and, and God gives a way for that to be given, and, and there's actual physical aspect to give to God in a way. Hannah was so moved that she gave her son. So moved that God would minister her in a darkest hour while her other housemate wife is mocking her. She, she was overwhelmed with the graciousness of God and gave her son to the service of the Lord. It was physical, wasn't it? Notice verse 16 through 21. Here there is the redeeming of lamb that was vowed. And maybe this would be the scene. I tried to kind of write this down to see if I could produce some imagery here as you think about this. There's an owner of a piece of farmed ground and he's standing in his field and the evening breezes bring this coolness at the end of the day on his tired body. But as he looks around at the ears of grain bending over because of the denseness of the heads of wheat on them, he senses the blessing of God. As he looks up with hands outstretched to the all-sufficient Father who has freely bestowed the blessing of the field ripe for harvest on him, in an act of worship, he portions a part of his land to God in an act of praise. Does that make sense? So I think that's what's going on here. 
This is a Boaz type of moment. This is somebody who realizes that God has been so gracious. I want to give back to you. Now, the land was given to the family, right? So when Joshua divides up the land, we'll see that in the book of Joshua. When it's, when it's divided up, it's given to families. But nevertheless, his vow was from his heart, and so he gives, he has to get the value of that land. He needs to give the value of that land to the money, of money into the tabernacle treasury because it's really not his land. It's the family's land. It's his children's after him and his children's and children's and so forth. And so God here in these verses in 16 to 21 provides a way for him to go in and say, here's the value of this portion of my crop, the value of this land and he gives that back to the Lord. And so this priest would value that land. He would see the potential production that it would have in the numbers of years left before the year of Jubilee. And he would set a price and that man would give that gift to the Lord. In verses 25 through, excuse me, 22 through 25, we see redeeming land that doesn't belong to you. <laughs> well, why do you do that? That's awful easy. Oh, I give you this land that Walmart sets on. <laughs> well, that'd be nice, but that's not what happens here. Then in many cases, the land was in somewhat what we would call a lease, right? So a family owned the land, but somebody else would farm that, lease that for them until the year of Jubilee. And in the year of Jubilee, as you remember, we studied this a few weeks ago, it would all be given back. But that person who's working the land could still vow or dedicate a portion of that land to God. And so he would bring the priest out. If he, had, if he had vowed that to God, he was overwhelmed with the kindness of God, what God had done for him, and he vowed that to God, the priest would come out, he would estimate the value of this land, take into consideration how many more years he would have it to, to, the, to the year of Jubilee, and there he would give him a price, and that money would go to the treasury in the tabernacle. Notice in verse 23 that the amount would be given as a holy offering to the Lord. Isn't that interesting? See, there's so much given to the Lord. We'll see this in a moment. We get down to the tithing part. That's not always monetarily. Um, people gave of their seed, of their fruit, of their vegetables. They gave of that to the Lord. They honored the Lord with all that they had. That was God's goal for the nation of Israel so they wouldn't fall into idolatry, to, to worship God with everything you have Give, a, give to me of everything you have so you don't fall into idolatry. And brothers and sisters, why we fall into idolatry from time to time is because we didn't give that thing to God. And we fought for it and we guarded it and we built a wall up on our heart because we didn't want it to be lost. So the nation was, God was setting up this nation so they wouldn't fall into sin. Look at verses 26 through 29. Um, in these verses we have kind of two opposite cases. The first would prohibit devoting things to God, certain things to God, and the other would prohibit going back on your word, even in the slightest way, on a vow here. So he says that everything firstborn was already the Lord's. You notice that. Everything firstborn belonged to the Lord. And as the nation of Israel, they're commanded all the way, goes, goes all the way back to Passover, and then even through the book of Exodus, and particularly in the book of Leviticus, everything firstborn belonged to the Lord. Therefore, it was a mockery to devote to, oh, God, I value my firstborn calf. Well, wait a minute, it's already God's. So that would be like this self-righteous thing. And so he's, he said, look, you can't do that. That already belongs to me. So you can't devote that. So especially every firstborn of all clean animals. But there was firstborn of unclean animals belonged to the Lord too but not given as a sacrifice on his altar. So they could be vowed as an unclean firstborn animal, but with the understanding that the only way to redeem them was the price of that animal plus 20%. But they belong to the Lord. Notice in verse 28 how the language changes a little bit. He uses the word, I think um, most of our better translations translate it, uh, sets apart or devote it to the Lord. You'll see that there. Well, this is a promise that's even more than a vow here. And it's something, it means something set apart, means something devoted to, to destruction. Now, that, that may seem a little bit odd, but let me explain. They were never to redeem something that was destined for destruction. We go, well, what would that be? How about the burnt offering? 
So you couldn't redeem a burnt offering because that thing was completely burned out. Whatever was left was taken outside the city and burned the rest of it, right? That's, it was not even shared with the priesthood. So here he makes it clear that something that's devoted to God, that, that is set apart for him, cannot be given as a vow. He does, not want God, he does not want his people to take what's most holy to the Lord and somehow be a part of that. And I think where this all works together is when we think about something like a, a burnt offering sacrifice where there's nothing shared with anybody, the whole offering goes to the Lord because it's for the sin of the offerer, is that God did not want them to have any part of that offering. Just like we have no part of Christ's death for us. He, he died alone for us, and it's in him alone that we trust for salvation. So anything that was destined for destruction, he did not want them to put a vow on. Now, now there, there are some things in the Old Testament we kind of see this played out a little bit. Um, any, any of the animals that touched Mount Sinai, um, God said were doomed and belonged to him. So you couldn't vow those. If they broke through the line, they were doomed and they were vowed. There's other places that I found that were interesting. I had not thought about. The field of Geborah, where Saul and Jonathan died, where their blood was spilt, David devoted that field to the Lord and it could never be sold or used in a vow in some way. So David did that. The spoils of Jericho, this is probably the one we know the most, right? The Bible says that the spoils were devoted to God and were to be destroyed. And there comes a big problem, right? Achan comes in, takes a bunch of stuff, stuffs it under his tent, whole family dies. Because that was destined for destruction. And God did not want them to vow on something that was not, uh, uh, something that was to, destined for destruction. And so think about this. And what do you put your weight on in this world that's destined for destruction? I mean, sometimes people put everything they have on things that are, are destined for destruction. And so God doesn't want that. So in other words, this is what I think he's saying here, is there's no reversal, no redemption, no alterations, no changes, no possibility of paying a substitution price for something already devoted to God, whether good or bad. He didn't want them to put their vow on that. Now, this is important because there could be no payment made for that which was condemned to bring reconciliation. That's what I'm getting at. So you couldn't reconcile something. You couldn't vow something and pay for something that was your reconciliation. So I brought my, my first, the firstborn male unblemished uh, ram, and I give, it to, I give it to the priest. But then I go, oh, hey, I'd like to buy that back. <laughs> no, no. That's devoted to the Lord, is devoted to be cursed and destroyed because of the sins of that individual. Now, fourth, all tithes belong to the Lord and are holy to him. Verses 30 through 33 here. Let me read these verses here. Um, Thus all the tithes of the land, of the seed of the land, of the fruit of the trees, is the Lord, it is holy to the Lord. If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. For every tenth part of the herd of the flock... The herd or flock, whatever passes under the rod, the tenth shall, uh, uh, the tenth one shall be uh, holy to the Lord. And he shall not be concerned whether it is good or bad, or, or shall he exchange it. Or if he does exchange it, then both it and the substitute shall become holy, and it shall not be redeemed. Well, here we start to get into this word tithe. Um, it's only used a few times before this, and we'll look at that here in a moment. But it, it tithe simply means a tenth uh, or 10% here. And Israel was, you notice in verse 30 here, they're supposed to give a 10% of their flock, 10% of their grain, 10% of their fruit to God. And this, this tithe, this 10%, notice the Bible says was holy and to be separate to the Lord. So it's hands off, give it to God, uh, do not try to take it back, it's given to God, it's holy, it belongs to him, it's set apart for his glory. That's good, good to think about when we give, right? Now the concept of tithing um, was not really totally new to the Israelites, right? We remember um, Abraham in Genesis chapter 20, uh, where after the battle to go get Lot and the family back in the war that happens there... 
he meets with Melchizedek, and there he gives a tenth of all he had to Melchizedek here. And so tithing's in it. It's in Israel's history already. So they understood what tithe meant. They knew it was tied to 10%. Now, the Israelites observed at least two different tithes that we know of in the Bible. One, this, this one here in Leviticus 27, and then there's one in Deuteronomy 14 that went to the poor of the land. So it had a built-in welfare system within the nation to care for. And so there's 20% there just in tithes. But many Old Testament theologians, and I read many guys on this, they all summarize to an average somewhere around 33% of their income Israelites gave to the nation of Israel. They gave it to the Lord so the nation would be ran and God would be blessed by their giving. Now this is how the priesthood was funded and how this nation itself was funded, the oversight of Moses and leaders and Levitical tribe and all of this. But then we come to us. What do we do with tithes, right? Um, Is that a word for us under the new covenant? Is that something we should be using? Well, under the new covenant, the New Testament, the the Bible does not emphasize the term tithe. You just don't find it in in the New Testament. Um, But the word that is emphasized is giving. And it's a sharply, very, very much different word. Uh, in fact, it's commanded, and, and it, it doesn't seem to have any options to it. Go with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, because uh, I think this is somewhere where um, maybe teaching grew up and the word tithe has worked its way into our language, and I don't think it's necessarily wrong, um, but the New Testament doesn't use it. It teaches us to give, to give. We're going to trail through a few verses in 1 Corinthians 16 and then into 2 Corinthians and look at a couple of these. Notice in 1 Corinthians 16, 1 through 2, that says, Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I direct the churches of Galatia. He's not going to tell, meaning, I'm telling you the same thing I'm telling the churches in Galatia. I don't have something new for you because you're more wealthy than they are. (laughs) I'm giving you the exact same information. Notice this. On the first day of every week, each one of you, very clear, each one of you is to put aside and save as he has prospered, so according to what God has given you, so that the collection, so that no collection be made when I come. Now, notice in verse 2 that there's this instruction of regular, plan, proportional giving, but not manipulation. So the word tithe is not there, there's not this... Uh, law that they give in order to sustain this nation and all that this nation did. Um, uh, This is given to the church, but it was regular, it was planned, and it was proportional. Now, we also pick up some things here of worship, right? So so worship comes when we first give ourselves. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. Because I want to show you that if you give and you haven't given yourself, now this goes back to, uh, I think this is some of that Old Testament application that comes forward, right? But under the new covenant. So worship comes when we first give ourselves to the Lord. And we give ourselves to the Lord because we're motivated by his great substitutionary sacrifice for our sake. And then we give our financial resources to our God and Savior. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. But when they first gave themselves, but they first gave themselves to the Lord. Now he's talking about um, those back in the Galatia area, the Mesopotamia area. These people gave of themselves first to the Lord and to us by the will of God. So, so they gave themselves, what can I do? How can I serve? I'm giving myself to the Lord and to the servants of the Lord, all done by the will of God. Look at verse 6. So we heard Titus that as he had previously made in the beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. So Paul says, we saw this gracious work come out of these, quite frankly, very less economically uh, blessed uh, churches, he said, Titus has watched that happen, and we've instructed Titus to, to send him there so you can join in on what God's doing. You can come along and do what God is doing here. Look at verse 7. But just as you, uh, uh, as just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in love, 
we inspire in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. So they were really big on a lot of things, right? We're going to get into that as we keep moving through 1 Corinthians. They were really set on wisdom and, and um, tongues and all this stuff. And he's going, you, you guys really think you got it going there. It's time for you to get going in this gracious act of giving to the work of God. So it's all about giving here. Again, there's no word for tithing in here. Verse 8, I'm not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnest of others the sincerity of your love also for you know the grace of our lord jesus christ here comes the motivation that though he was rich yet for your sake he became poor so that so that you through his poverty might become rich so here he brings in the motivation to give because christ stepped out of heaven left his father and throne above and stepped into humanity became poor for us and died for us so we would become rich. So Paul is instructing the Corinthians here to give, and it's a, it, it shows validity of a person who worships. That's what Paul's doing. Drop down to chapter 9, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 7. Giving also should be seen as an investment, but not the way we think about investing money. Look at verse 6. 2 Corinthians 9, 6. Now this I say, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. But here's an investment. But he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Now, I, I, the prosperity gospel loves to run with us and say, you know, you, you, you give a dollar, you get ten back. They'll, they'll do all these crazy things trying to uh, get people to give. But this is an investment, and every time we, we, we look at the scriptures when it comes to fruit like this, reaping all of this, it's connected to the work of the gospel. And so he's saying when you sow, when you give to this, there's going to be a great, there's going to be a great harvest from the work of the Lord. And then he gives a little more instruction in verse 7 here. And, and, and notice, um, again, the word tithe is not used here. Each one must do just as he has purposed in his heart. Uh-oh, there's the vow. Have, one of the things we teach young couples, um, and our staff here as well, elders, as we go through um, premarital counseling or some kind of marriage counseling, is we sit down with them. Have you decided, have you purposed in your heart what you're going to give to the Lord? Have you, have you done that as a couple? Have you sat down or a single? Have you decided, have I purposed to give to God in a show of worship for what he's done for me? And so here this is this, this purposeful heart. Notice it's not grudgingly. It's not under compulsion. It's a hot spot in hell for some people who try to use the gospel to, to get people to give money. This is not under compulsion. This is under worship, for God loves this cheerful giver. So worshipful giving first produces the investment of joy, and then it produces the spread of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But again, the word tithe, is, we don't find it here. So Paul goes on to remind the Corinthians to give. Um, and one of the things he does the rest of this chapter, and I'm running out of time, so let me just sum this up, is he says you should give to those who feed you spiritually. And he's teaching them to give to the apostles who are really the pastors of that church at this point, which they've not been giving in fact, all they've been doing is giving them a bunch of hardship, as we learn in 1 Corinthians. Now, because the New Testament places emphasis on giving more than tithing, there's no clear answer to how much. So people will often say, well, pastor, how much should I give? Well, some people go back to the Old Testament and they say, you know, I like that round number of 10%. Um, I don't think it's wrong to do that. They find some comfort in that 10%. But according to 1 Corinthians 16.2, it should be proportional to what God has given you. So, so you should go back and say, God has given me, and, and, and so you're not going off of, well, I'm going to give this much. It's in proportion to what God has given you. So there's where some people try to connect that idea of 10%. I think 10% is a good benchmark, but pray and, and make an earnest decision together what God would have you give. But look, all giving should be motivated by the grace of God. 
If it's motivated by anything else, if you're, if you're well, I'm going to give this to God and hopefully he's going to get me out of this jam. Or I give out of guilt because I've been living in sin. All kinds of things. Now, praise the Lord, we don't know any of that. You know, <laughs> We count the money back there and put it in deposit and then you know, spread the money out throughout the ministry and keep the gospel going around the world. That's, that's our goal. But, boy, I, I, wanna, I want to give an act of worship, don't you? Lord, here's just this portion. Here's a portion of what you've given to me. And it could be a, a widow's might. Or it could be a whole lot more, depending what, how God has given to you. Back in our text, go back and we'll finish up here. Uh, verse 31 in Leviticus chapter 27. Verse 31 says, If therefore a man wishes to redeem part of his tithe, he shall add to it one-fifth of it. You go, well, what does that mean? I give, give my tithe again and plus the 20%. Well, I think it's more referring to the idea of maybe a man gave good seed from his field. Um, but instead of giving that seed, he could give the value of that seed, what that grain would go for in the open market and add 20%, and he could give that way. I think that's what it means. Verse 32, I love this little phrase here. Notice it says, whatever passes under the rod. Well, here animals were counted. They were put in single file. They were run through. And under the herdsman's rod, every tenth animal was marked with a red stain. And then that animal was, was um, you know, herded off uh, to the Levitical tribe and was given to God and vowed to him, as that's what that means. Now, I have to tell you one sad but funny story. When I was first starting in ministry, I was working with um, my mentors. And we had a church going up in the hills and in some ranching community. And a, a man who I knew who owned a very large ranch showed up at church one day. And um, I, I hadn't talked to him, but my mentor, who was the teaching pastor, and I was working with him, um, I said, hey, I noticed uh, Bob was here today. Why, you know why he came? I know his wife's really big into that church in town and all that. And he, was, he said, well, he said, that church, their elders, or whatever they're called, apostles, showed up at his ranch. And they said, look, we want you to run all your animals by, and we're going to take one of, uh, one of every, every ten, and we're going to keep that. <laughs> that was it. <laughs> he knew the church wasn't good anyway. I don't think he was saved at the time. But he realized, wow. And this is, what I, this is some of the things why I've taught, and be careful with these things, that there's so many churches and theologies that go into this understanding that they are somehow Israel, and they try to apply some of this to, and that was one of those perfect situations, because this man said, is that right? Can these, quote, apostles of this charismatic church come out, quote me this verse out of Leviticus 27, and take, take a tenth of my herd? I said, no. <laughs> you should leave that place now, and, and uh, I'll buy you a steak, okay? Um, <laughs> And it's just interesting how that happens. But, but here, this was a joy. You were giving, you were giving a clear tenth of what God had given you. It was marked out for the blessings of God. And what a precious thing that was to a man, to a family that loved God. Now, notice this last verse. These are the commands given to Israel, verse 34. These are the commands which the Lord commanded Moses for the sons of Israel at Mount Sinai. Well, here we conclude the book of Leviticus, and Moses is reminding us that these were commands given to the nation of Israel. And certainly, there's application for us, but we have to understand it's given to them. This was to run this theocracy, this, this kingdom there on earth in such a way as it grew and moved its way to the promised land. God had designed this for them. And, and think about this. They're about ready to depart. They're about ready to leave this mountain where doubtlessly not very far off was this rock that flowed with water. They had been fed bread from heaven. And now they're going to go towards the promised land. And all of these things that have been given to them, this, this tabernacle set up, the sacrifice system, all that pertains to that has to run, has to go so they can be reconciled with God um, temporarily, but still reconciled with him. So these commands were given to keep their focus squarely on God and what he provided for them. And again, once they got away from this, they fell into idolatry. 
And once we get away from giving to God our lives, our marriages, our children, our, our businesses, all of it, giving it to the God, when we get away from that, like them, we'll find idolatry very quickly. And the Lord, clearly, he didn't want these. And, and, and it's clear. Everybody I, ever, I read on this said these, these were not laws laid down like the rest of the law. And because God did not want them to become traditions or customs, but they did, right? They, they became that. They, they, they turned to these to find some kind of righteousness to get to God. And we see that in the Pharisees during Jesus' ministry. But these, these commands were given so the nation would know how to, and here's the phrase that's used 60 times, at least 60 times in Leviticus, how they would know to, to walk before the Lord. And that's what the book of Leviticus was for the nation of Israel. So they would know how to walk before the Lord. And everything that happened in all of the instruction of this book was before the Lord. And in this book of law, God had inscribed divine justice. He described the sinfulness of sin. We, remember, we looked at that, and this innocent animal dies. And, and that, that offender stood there and had to watch that animal, his life go out of him because he sinned. But yet, in all of that, God was showing a way to be reconciled temporarily, but reconciled to him. And then he gave a law, and one of the things that struck me as I studied Leviticus is that he gave a law that the expanse of the law reached into every aspect of their life, whether it was neighbors or, or family or giving or whatever it was, he gave a law that helped them in every aspect of their life. Well, through the law, they knew who God was now. They had a right knowledge of sin. They understood how to be reconciled. But there was no cure for sin. And that's what's interesting. As we study the law, we realize it's pointing to something that's still coming for the cure for sin. And I love what our dear Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, verse 4. He says, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believes. What a beautiful thing. And so here all this is, this is all put in. It's gracious by God. God has provided so much for them so they don't stray away from him. The graciousness of God is seen all the way through the law, and yet there isn't the final cure. Romans says that God provided um, this great sacrificial system in Romans chapter 3 to hold off the judgment of God till Christ would come. And yet the law was not ended till Christ came and fulfilled it. For that's where righteousness is attained through Christ Jesus. We started this whole lesson off in um, Leviticus. I started with the verse, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. I hope through this study you've learned to look at the word of God, realize that our righteousness does not come from what we keep. And what we do and this whole list of stuff that we seem to be um, susceptible to sometimes. But it points to the desperate need that there is one who has to come and fulfill all of this so that he could usher us into his Father's presence, not dressed in the righteousness that we have done, but the righteousness that he gave us through his impeccable, perfect death and resurrection. And so the law is good. I learned so much about relationships and how a community and how a nation should live together in harmony that's what God provides in there. And there's still great stuff there. There's still wonderful stuff. Because, wow, if our country would just do some of these things, we see where there would be more harmony. And, uh, and yet, all of that shows that there's no hope if man's just left to a law. He can't keep it, and he will fail. And that's why our Lord came. He came to fulfill all that. So, what a wonderful study of Leviticus. I never thought I would teach through it. Um, I hope you're all still here, so that's that's good view. <laughs> Um, and uh, never thought I would really teach through it, but the more I've studied this Pentateuch, the more I see the glory of Jesus Christ. It keeps pointing me forward to that great person in Jesus Christ, and I hope it is with you. Father, thank you for our time in this book of the law. Thank you that we understand that we don't open the book of Leviticus and try to keep these laws in order to gain righteousness that would allow us to be in your presence. That would be futile. 
But yet, Lord, Paul said the law is good if it's used in a right way. And so there are great things that we've learned. And Lord, we learned that you have always provided a way for man to be reconciled to you. Certainly in the early days and years of the nation of Israel, it was temporary. But Lord, all of those sacrifices all pointed toward your son who would be the final lamb. But then, Lord, there's great truth to be reminded of how to respect a neighbor. And if you destroy something of your neighbors, how to make that right and be reconciled with neighbors and, and how to live in, in gracious company with other people. And so, Lord, there's much to learn here to use uh, for your glory and for our good. Lord, we thank you for the word of God. What a joy to open it week after week, um, day after day, individuals here, I'm sure, opening the Bible each and every morning or evening or lunchtime and reading, Lord. What a blessing to have the Holy Spirit to help us understand these truths, Lord. May we not uh, hide this truth under a bushel, but may we let it be out and shining in our lives that your word and your son have changed our lives. Thank you for these dear folks, Lord. Bless us as we continue to study in whatever books you lead us to. May we handle them rightly and accurately for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.